This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Devil's Business. Look at this subtitle. A study in how to shut down the agenda of strife and division in the church. I've been, over these past weeks, been going through a quasi-series on character. And there are certain things in the body of Christ that sponsor our growth and our health, and there are certain things that disable us and disintegrate our ability to function together as a body. Ironically, even though this is going to be dealing with the church, you could apply this to marriages, you could uh, apply this to families, you could apply this to anything of groups of people uh, that are banded together for a common cause. And so as we walk through this, one of the things that I think I, I just want to mention, even though I'm assuming you all know it, is this is not a direct attack on our church to try and bring a rebuke or a correction, as much as it is a series to lay foundation stones where we will be cognizant and recognize when the enemy begins to make a play against our lives. When the enemy tries to slip in, if you recognize, uh, if you have an alarm system built and in the middle of the night the window opens and the alarm goes off, guess what? You're prepared, in a sense, to know what that is and how to respond to it. Without that pre-work of setting up the alarm system, you may not even hear the window open, let alone when he steals your new Mac uh, book computer off the counter. In other words, the enemy gets away with a lot in our lives that we are unaware of. And I would like us to be more aware and set up alarm systems in and amongst not just our souls, but our environment here as a church so that we are aware of how the enemy works and we are quick to respond properly to it. These six things the Lord hates. All right, so in other words, we have things. The the word Lord and hate doesn't go together very often in the Bible. God hates certain things. The, name, the word for Lord is Jehovah, Jehovah, the I am who never changes. If he hates it back then, he hates it now. This is a big list, in other words. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. These are strong words, okay? Now we're just about to get the list. And so when you get a list like this, it, it behooves us to pay attention. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. Now, just so you wouldn't miss it, I've made it big and bold, and one who sows discord among brethren. Isn't that a strange thing to sort of throw into a list? It's like, oh, yeah, bad. Oh, terrible. Well, that's that's sickening. And then this one is like, oh, one who sows discord amongst brethren is actually an abomination to God. He hates it. I mean, this is not just sort of like, yeah, could you not do that? This is, he hates it. It's a big deal. So, in my life and my ministry, in dealing with the church of Jesus Christ, 
I probably struggle like many of you in this room in being in a church building. Isn't that ironic? I'm like the pastor here and I struggle with being in a church building. I've gotten used to this building, but I still go into church buildings a lot and there's just a discomfort because there's a lot of pain that I've experienced in those buildings. There's a lot of things that have happened as a result of ministering the gospel, of standing for the truth, that make me sort of recoil and want to draw back from fellowship with the body. You see, if you've been around bodies that sow discord, that criticize, that bring judgment on your soul every time you turn around, and everyone sees your flaws, and no one takes the time to recognize that you're given everything you got, you're doing the best you know how, but everyone only sees what's wrong with you. If you've ever, and I know a lot of you aren't married, but there are those of us in this room that are, there's two ways of being married. Remember when you rode off into the sunsets and, you know, to live happily ever after, and all you can see is the beauty and the virtue in that person? And then suddenly, they really start getting under your skin. It's like, I can't believe they do that. And it becomes disgusting almost, to the point where now all you see is what's wrong with them instead of those virtues you once witnessed. When that happens in the body of Christ, you can't get anywhere. It's miserable for everyone, believe me, not just you. Everyone is miserable. Galatians 5. Now, this is one of the famous lists that most of us never read, because just after this, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is a much more pleasant list. Okay, but we have what's called the works of the flesh, And it's written before the fruit of the Spirit to show a contrast. And ironically, there's a lot of fruit here. Okay? And these are called the works of the flesh. Now, I'm going to read them. There's 17 of them. When it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, there's just nine. we got tons of flesh here. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. And I numbered them for you, by the way. That's not in the Bible. I added the numbers. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Boo! Bad stuff. Don't do that. Right? Now, we know that. Those are bad dudes. Now, look at where we start in. At number seven, which is where we're going to spend most of our time focused, is seven through 13. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, yeah, well, I only named 17, but in everything like that. And the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There's a pattern of how we are to relate one with the other. And God has given us the remedy for our issues. Every single one of us has borne evidence of the work of the flesh in our life. So there isn't a one of us in here that is suddenly just like, oh yeah, I can't even relate with that list. We all understand that list. However, what we should be more familiar with as Christians is the fruit of the Spirit. We don't participate in the work of the flesh anymore. We bear the fruit and the evidence of being changed by the Spirit of God. And this must take place within us as a body, not just in us as individuals, but in us as a body, where the works of the flesh are not evident here. 
So if someone on the outside were to come and study us, you know, do a little documentary film on us and watch every one of our lives and just follow us around with a camera, that they literally would be able to see the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. Because we're the body of Christ, aren't we? 17 works of the flesh. Seven of them seem strangely like the same exact concept repackaged and restated a new way. I'm going to hollow out the seven middle ones, okay? Because those have to do with what we're going to talk about today. Seven through 13. And what's interesting is as I give you the Greek words and the definitions for these, you'll feel very smart at the end of this message. You're going to, you're going to almost think like, isn't that the same word? Isn't that the same definition you just gave me? Yeah, uh, sort of. In other words, these are all in the same family. They're like synonyms for each other that are all saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So hatred, ekthra, is our Greek word. It means enmity, enemy-minded, against, or poised to oppose. You see, a Christian isn't enemy-minded. We are not figuring out who's our enemy and then positioning ourselves against them. We're not enemy-minded. We do not have enmity. We don't foster hatred. Hatred or enemy-mindedness is an idea that basically says, I know that guy's against me. I do not like that guy. In other words, we literally take posture. When you grow up in America, you grow up enemy-minded because of politics and because of sports. I mean, for me, it was the Oakland Raiders. And it was enmity against them. It was a mindset towards something. And I don't care. I mean, one of my favorite players could be traded there, and I hated him. If he would betray the Broncos and go to the Raiders, oh, then I have nothing to do with them. You see, these mentalities that we cultivate in our life actually can spread to our most intimate relationships. It's a very dangerous mentality, even though for most of us it's fun and games, it actually becomes very serious. Because when it comes to politics, there are people that you probably hate. And you should probably hate their ideology, but not them. You see, we're Christians. We do not have a work of the flesh in us that breeds that idea. Contentions, and there's our word, eris. And so in, when this is a work of the flesh within us, it actually is contention, strife, wranglings, debate, and quarreling. This ought not to be amongst us. In other words, I know it's hard to imagine a marriage without this. It's hard to imagine a family without this. You ever dreamed of having a church without this? It's like, oh, it's too good to be true. And yet, that's actually what the Bible prescribes. And I say, if God has given us the grace to have it, I'm going after it. Jealousies. The word is zelos. You know, you ever heard of a zealot or zeal? Eh, There's the Greek word that it comes from, zelos. Fierce judgment on that which opposes. In other words, when you see an idea that is opposite of yours, you bring fierce judgment on it. It is a harshness towards the realm of ideas and those who bear those ideas. It is a fervor that is overdone. It is too much. It's like baking the bread for 30 minutes too long. And what you have is zelos. It's something that is not right. It's not appropriate. It's not the way the Spirit of God would handle that. Yeah, the Spirit of God is maybe against the ideas, but he handles his opposition very differently than zelos. It means fierce judgment on that which opposes zealous desire to be proven right. Intense rivalry. Have you ever had it where you have an opinion and you just need to force it on someone, they need to think your thoughts, they better come to that conclusion? That's zealous. It's a zealous position, and it actually brings division in the body of Christ. 
Number 10, it's translated as outbursts of wrath, but technically it's thomos, which is anger, indignation, and fury. It's just not healthy. Okay, these are things that are not supposed to be named amongst us. These are not behaviors that we cultivate. Selfish ambitions. I'm not exactly sure if that's the best translation for the word aretheia, but it means strife, contention, and fractious. Doesn't it just seem like something we just named on the list? But fractious meaning it actually will bring about fractions. It'll divide people. And it labors to do it. It's like, hey, you're with me. We're against them. It sides against things. And so this very concept oftentimes includes the notion of exalting you to a leadership over this little subgroup, too. It's like a coup attempt on a leader. Sort of what Absalom pulled off. That's, that's the idea of Arethia. And then we have dissensions. Boy, this word looks just like the other words. It's dikostasia, which is dissension, division, and sedition. It's actually laboring to bring about separation, division, contention. It seems to thrive when people are against each other. It sort of throws in a little gossip into the little turnstile and stirs it into the pot, and now suddenly you see two people at enmity with each other, and it smiles. It goes, ah, that's the way I like it. Number 13, heresies. Uh, the word heresy to us in the modern church means something a little different than the actual Greek word means. To us, it just means bad doctrine. Oh, come on, that's, that's an unbiblical thought. Technically, it means it's heresies, sect creating. A sect is a small group of those that are like-minded. Forcing sect mentality. It's like, hey, we can't stand with them. They don't believe this. And so as a result, it forces a separation in the body of Christ. Dissensions and divisions arising from diversity of opinions and aims. It thrives on diversity of opinion. And it emphasizes diversity of opinion to the point of creating sex. That's actually something that God himself is saying, this is a work of the flesh in and amongst the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? That God's ideas idea wasn't denominations or sects. That's what a denomination is in the body of Christ, by the way. It's a sect. It's a heresy. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at it? It's the opposite of the way we do it. We create our sects to protect against heresy. Now, there is a point of separation. I'm going to be going through that in this message, okay? At least at a certain degree, because that's part of everything I've been bringing up the last three weeks creates other question marks. However, still the truth. So meet the League of Extraordinary Church Destructos. So we have Mr. Ekthra, the guy who is always eager to argue and take the contrary position. Now, as we go through this, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to touch these areas of your life to see if you are conducive to this behavior in your marriage, in your family life, in the church life. Okay, or you, I mean, you could take it all the way to your business life too, your sports teams, your military operations. I don't care what it is, but are you Mr. Ekthra or, Miss, or Mrs. Ekthra? The guy who is always eager to argue and take the contrary position. It's just fun. It's fun to take the contrary position to be the devil's advocate. And so that's all I'm doing. I'm just being the devil's advocate. No, you're being an irritant. You're actually creating uh, contentions that wouldn't otherwise be there. Mr. Eris, the guy who brings debate into every single conversation and who sees flaw in everyone around him. All he sees is what's wrong with people. When he looks at someone's doctrine, he only sees what they don't believe correctly. 
He doesn't see what they do believe correctly. It's one of my big pet peeves in the body of Christ today. If we spent even a smidgen, one one one-hundredth of the time recognizing where we stand together on the person of Jesus Christ, it would change everything. But most people spend all their energies figuring out where they disagree instead of on where we are standing true and solid for the person of Jesus Christ. Mr. Zelos, the guy who can't let an argument go. You ever been around that guy? It's like, yeah, could we just drop this? No! We need to conclude. Basically what he's saying is you need to think what I think. Mr. Zelos, the guy who can't let an argument go but must convince others of his rightness. Thank you, Mr. Zelos. This has been very helpful today. Mr. Thumos, the guy who is always flying off the handle and going into meltdown mode. Mm-hmm. Very fun to be around, isn't it? You see, there, these are activities of the soul that every one of us may be vulnerable to. However, what I want you to recognize as we go through this list isn't for us just to feel bad about it. It's to recognize that there actually is a solution for it. In other words, if you, most of us that would behave this way aren't just saying, hey, yeah, I'd like to continue in that. We'd, we'd say, hey, is there an escape hatch here? I do not want to continue in that because those behaviors destroy marriages. Those behaviors destroy families. Those behaviors destroy churches. So let's allow the Spirit of God to come in and touch these behaviors. Mr. Erethea, the guy who seems more comfortable with strife than with cordiality. It's like if there's no strife in the room, he's uncomfortable. He's going to have to create something. He's going to have to bring something out. He's going to have to poke a hot poker into their side. Say, hey, you feel that? Ah, there we go. There we go. Get a little anger going. Actually feels better, more comfortable in such a circumstance. Mr. Dicostea. The guy who brings divisions and defines denominations and classes. All right, this side of the room over here, this side of the room over here. All right, he just likes to codify things. You know, he's the guy that built the periodic table of elements. He's like looking and saying, all right, here. All right, you're over here, and you're classified as a idiot over here, and you're a idiot over here. All right, now the right people come with me. You see, it's, that's, that's what this guy is. He's the guy that brings division under the banner of purity of doctrine. However, what it is is pompous arrogance. And so what we have is we have a problem. These men, when they rule the church, destroy the church. Mr. Mr. Hyreses, the guy who forces everyone into a denomination or class and won't rest until everyone is separated and codified. So I know it sounds just like the previous guy, right? But this is the other guy's, you know... uh, I don't know, what do you call it? The big bully guy that goes with him and he goes on, he says, you, and he picks you up and sticks you in a class. And you're like, I don't want to be in a denomination. I don't want to be defined by that. Too bad. You will be defined by that because we have Mr. Hyresis in the room. He will make you be defined by that. I am sick and tired of this behavior in the body of Christ. God hates it, which is my great solace in this. You see, this is not the way we ought to function as the body of Christ. What do these seven destructos have in common? They all create issues for the church. They all break down relationships in the church. They all feed and foster division in the church. They all see problems and weaknesses in the lives of the believers. They all promote arguments and debates amongst the believers. They all spread gossip, discord, and distrust in the leadership of the church. And they all are participating in the devil's business of undermining the church of Jesus Christ. 
Simply put, this behavior undermines healthy relationship. The safest places on earth, we could go through them, are supposed to be a mother's womb, and yet today in our country and around the world, it is considered one of the most dangerous places for an unborn child, is a mother's womb. Statistically speaking, that isn't right. Well, how about a family? A family is a safe place to be. Oh, not anymore. To be in a normal everyday family means great harm and trauma, and most of the trauma and harm in a young child's life is going to come from a family environment. Uh, do you want me to add church to that list? See, most of us with a wry grin could look back and say, yeah, right, safe? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be, though. See, what I'm interested in is not just where the church is at as a whole. I want to bring back the true strength of the body of Christ. I want us to aim in the same direction the Spirit of God is aiming, and that is to knit us together as a body where we can begin to function without that sense that someone has a knife and they're about ready to stab us in the back with it. It just doesn't breed trust. You see, this is what's happened to marriages. This is what's happened to families. This is what's happened to churches. And as a result, our culture is massively suffering because the church itself is not showing the pattern. The thespian society. A thespian is an actor. Okay, so I'm using a big word here just to impress you. Uh, the thespian society making everything into a drama. So I, I don't know how to describe this, but there are certain people. For instance, I am not a big fan of drama. I have one of my children that seems to be a big fan of drama. And no matter what happens, there's a little drama that will flow out of it. And I'm usually the opposite. No drama. Nope. Ludies don't have drama. I have enough drama in my life. I don't need drama from those I'm supposed to not have drama with. Does that make sense? That's exactly what I'd want to say to you this morning. No drama. Hey, guys, we do not do drama at the Church of Ellerslie. No drama. You see, we as Christians have plenty of drama. But our drama is not supposed to come internally in our relationships. That's where the peace and the joy and the love flow. Oh, we're not supposed to have it here. And yet most of you would say, yeah, that's where most of your drama comes from. You know how hard it is for us to go out and save a dying world when we can't even get out of here without a limp? This is ridiculous. Well, again, this isn't necessarily a personal rebuke on this church. Actually, I think in many ways this church is healthier than most churches out there in this regard. But I want us to be watchful of how the enemy works in this regard in our lives. So the thespian society is it's a whole bunch of actors, a whole bunch of dramatics. So have you ever been around someone, it's junior high girls, if I'm going to give you a mental picture, <laughs> that they can't live without some juicy bit of drama in their life. And if there isn't any drama, they will create a, a tidbit of information to create drama. It's an extremely unhealthy practice, and yet that's what oftentimes we'll do in the church. Let me give you the motto of the thespian society and see if you recognize this. If there ain't any drama in the scene, then add some. If there ain't any drama in this church, let's add some. Let's, you know, let's get this thing going here. We have nothing to get excited about. Nothing to intrigue us. You see, I want a church where there's no drama amongst us. We're just loving each other. And we do it well. Our drama is going to come with standing for truth in a world that hates it. You'll get plenty of drama that way. 
You can't just have a no-drama church. That's what most people are going to say. Why? Because they've never seen it in their life. And there's another reason. Who would want to attend there? May, I may be the only one amongst us that wants to go to that church. Introducing the no-drama church. The no-drama church is a church that isn't distracted by its own personal woes, bickerings, tattlings, grievances, and contentions but is fully focused on dealing with the high-stakes drama of rescuing a lost world for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is Paul talking, that you all speak the same thing. Okay, let's just stop there. So Paul has beseeched us that we would all speak the same thing and that there would be no divisions among you. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, wait, yeah, maybe back in the early church, Paul, but, I mean, have you ever seen the church today? Yeah, right. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, uh-oh, that there are contentions among you. You see, Paul is writing the letter in 1 Corinthians because of this very fact. It's funny, many of us want to be the early church but we don't want to be the church at Corinth. Let me just break it to you right now. Just because it's early and it was 2,000 years ago doesn't mean it was always healthy. You see, they had the same devil that wanted to do the same dastardly business in their ranks. And that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. It is Paul literally coming into a church that was ravaged with the same ridiculousness that the modern church today is ravaged with. Just read it. You get a big smile on your face and say, huh, Yeah, you know what? I don't really want to become that church either. Just because it's a book in the Bible, Corinth, doesn't mean it was healthy. In other words, they had issues. What were their issues? Uh Uh-oh. He's heard from the house of Chloe that there are contentions among them. Oh, yeah, there were. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, there's a bad unity. I'll be the first one to acknowledge that where you unite on the wrong things. Like, for instance, our goal and our aim in society is just to have well-adapted children, and that's like our one thing. Well, who defines well-adapted, number one? You see, what we, do, what we unite on isn't just anything, like we all agree that the color black is a very uh, neat color for chairs in a church, and all of us form a sect over that. We all are agreeing on something. What is that something? It's the person of Jesus Christ. And who that man is in our life, who he was, and who he is, and who he always will be. He is the central defining cog of what causes true unity in the body of Christ. Is contention good or bad? I mean, that's an important question here, because if you were to study the Bible, you'd see that the word eris isn't always used in the negative. But we're also supposed to contend, because it says in the book of Jude... You should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. So let me give you an illustration here. Contention within our ranks of those that stand united on the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, extremely dangerous. What we are to do is stand together to contend, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, back to back, to contend against the powers of darkness that are seeking to invade this environment. See the difference between the two? There's bad contention and good contention. 
bad contention. It involves internal distraction and internal destructos and hinders the church from focusing on the right sort of contention. Good contention is contending for the faith, not against the body of Christ, but against the powers of darkness. can't tell you how many people are contending for the faith, and I'm putting quotes around that, and the whole while what they're doing is bringing division in the body. Oh, they're contending for their faith. Their pet doctrine is technically the better way of saying it. The no drama church is the one built for high heavenly drama. You see, it's not that God isn't preparing us for drama. It's the right sort of drama. High heavenly drama. And that's what he's prepared us for, and that's what he's given us grace for. The ingredients of the, the, ingredients of the no drama church. So here's some ingredients. The first one is highly gracious, no drama believers. Boy, this is a dream. If you look at my Christmas list and, and someone says, so Eric, what do you want for Christmas? Oh boy. How about a church full of highly gracious, no drama believers? That is like a dream. Could you imagine what a church would be like for a leader if you had that? Everything you do that might not be totally right, you know, because you know, in governmentally decision, you overlook things. You, you say as a church, you know, this is where we're headed. You might take you three times longer to get there than it actually did. And there's so many reasons for offense and criticism and, oh, it's just all over the place because it's a whole bunch of imperfect people gathered together to serve the perfect Savior. And yet, if you could have highly gracious, no drama believers, you got it made as a leader. So ones that overlook weakness. You know, weakness just sort of stares us in the face and niggles at us. Oh, I see weakness. But we choose to overlook weakness. Care for the irritating with a gracious spirit. You know, irritating people, let's just get, you know, out on the table, are irritating. You guys notice that? Isn't that a funny thing that irritating people are irritating? And they are. And the church is well, maybe I should say it this way. The church has some irritating people in it. Okay, now don't take it personally. Is he, is he talking about me? The church just does, okay? And every family could have some irritating children in it. Okay, these things can happen. However, how do we handle it? We care for the irritating with a gracious spirit. You see, a gracious spirit recognizes that that's a work in process. And it doesn't bring judgment and say, well, they'll forever be that way. And then, you know, draw the final conclusion. Purposely says no to entertaining criticism in the mind. When criticism comes and knocks and says, hey, could I come in and, you know, express myself? No is the answer always. See, this is how a highly gracious church works. No, I will not entertain criticism. It's simply a done deal. I will not do that. And purposely they say yes to thoughts of honor. Care and thanksgiving for the band of brethren surrounding them and the leadership that they have been given. Here's the second ingredient to a no-drama church. This is, this is really exciting, too. Highly loving, no-nonsense leaders. You see, you notice how I put highly loving at the front of it? Because if I just said no-nonsense leaders, then it just sounds intimidating. Have you ever been around one of those no-nonsense leaders? It's rather harsh, demeaning, always finding faults in his body and always wanting to correct that, too. No, no, it's highly loving and no nonsense. In other words, as a father, something comes to my door, knocks and says, hey, uh, I'd like to come in and harm your wife and children, and I am a no-nonsense father and husband. No. It's like, how rude is that? Yeah, I don't care what it's interpreted by out there. The answer is no. 
Why? Because I'm a no-nonsense, highly loving leader that is going to protect that which is in my care. So ones are highly loving, no-nonsense leaders that would gladly suffer personal loss and harm in order to see every last one of the beloved believers under their care spiritually alive and healthy. Leaders ready to say no to parental passivity. You know what parental passivity is? It's like your child is looking at something on the internet, your child is watching some movie, and something is coming up that is just inappropriate. And it's just like, oh, they'll see it anyways. And as a result, that passivity actually removes the guard. It's like someone come up to the door and say, yeah, I'd like to harm your wife and children. I go, yeah, it's just too much for me to say no. Why don't you just come on and do what you need to do? And as a result, that actually breaks down the trust of the home and it actually corrupts the very thing that as a parent, you're put in charge to protect. So these are leaders that say no to parental passivity and yes to active engagement, discipleship, and correction in the realm of weakness, irritating behaviors, and rough edges. You see, there's two different relationships here. One is a parent, one is a child. A child needs to be gracious with the irritating qualities of their brothers and sisters. A parent needs to be gracious with the irritating qualities of their children. However, a parent is also a no-nonsense, highly loving leader, which also is going to work to remove those irritating qualities from their children. Does that make sense? In other words, but that's not a fellow child's position to do. That's the no-nonsense, highly loving leader's position to come in and say, we need to work on this. And it's, this highly loving, no-nonsense leader is also ready to aggressively protect the body of Christ from any destructive behaviors that attempt to creep into their midst. What is it supposed to be like? What's this church supposed to look like? Let's go through a list. A new commandment I give unto you, says Jesus, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Listen to this line. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By this all men shall know that we are the true body of Christ if we have love one to another. That's the quality. You see that we are no drama, that we don't allow these destructive behaviors in. This is actually how the world will know that we're the genuine body of Christ. This isn't a small thing. This is a highlight point in the Bible. This is how we showcase the fact that we're the genuine, the authentic, and the real. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. So this is right in the beginning of the book of Acts where you have all these believers coming in. And this is what it says about them. They were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. Now I'm not trying to press a socialistic agenda on you this morning. I'm just saying this is quite a quality. Literally, it's like, hey, if I have any strength, I'll give it to you. If I have any resource, I'll give it to you in a time of need. You see, we are treating each other as brothers, as sisters, as family members. We are doing whatever it would take to serve one another because we're body. We're family now. The God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one mind and one mouth, we work together. We are a body knit together and unified. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. Same Bible. Same Bible that's saying, hey, let's just be one big family, also says, hey, and there are those that are not a part of this family. You need to realize that there are things that unite us and there's things that cause us to awaken and say, well, lock that window, close that door. That doesn't belong in here. So, What do you close the windows to and what do you close the doors to? I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions 
and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Now, most of us are saying, well, I learned a good Calvinistic doctrine, so anything that is contrary to that, that's not what it's talking about. The doctrine of the practice that you have learned, which is everything is according to Christ Jesus and everything centers around the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You have learned the doctrine of how to behave as the body of Christ, how to love one another, how not to entertain accusation. You have learned how to be the body. Do not entertain that which would be contrary to the most, most central tenets of what it is that binds us together. If anyone comes into our midst and brings divisions or offenses, this is a serious issue to us as the body. We're supposed to mark them. And then it says, and avoid them. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Well, that sounds sort of rude. This sounds like the opposite of loving, doesn't it? You see, this stays outside. This is not allowed in. Let's go through the list. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. See, conversation is not just me talking with you, you talking back. It's our life message. Your conversation is that which you're speaking with your life. And so the commission from Paul is only let your conversation or that which your life declares be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded. Listen to this. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Could you imagine if we all as a body decided to treat everyone around us as more important than us? You suddenly have the secret to the body of Christ working. Finally, be you all of one mind. How many times have we heard the word one mind, one spirit, one purpose? This is the idea of the church of Jesus Christ. Having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Be pitiful, that's a little different meaning, meaning you have pity or you share affection or you live in an understanding way with those around you. So don't take that, put that on, as the quote on your, on your refrigerator, be pitiful. <laughs> be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise or opposite of that, give blessing, knowing that you are there unto called that you should inherit a blessing. So you don't argue, you don't complain, you don't uh, divide, you bless. That's what you do. The model of the family. So which role are you currently in? Now, it's funny because you could take the family or the marriage. You could take the home environment. You could take the church environment. And each of those environments sort of has the same thing. For instance, there's a parent role in a family. And there's a parent role in a church. And if you're not in that role, you need to know that. Okay? Because there's a few people that can act like they're the parents when they're not. Have you ever seen a... 10-year-old kid act like the parent uh, towards his younger siblings, and it really gets him in trouble, okay? And, you know, the younger kids just really don't like it. Have you ever been disciplined by a parent that wasn't yours? Uh-huh. It doesn't go over well. It's a really strange thing, but a parent, when someone who's not the parent acts as the parent, it actually brings a discord in our soul, 
and an offense. It's really hard to describe. So which role are you currently in? Parent, child, guest, or relative? There's all sorts of options. You know, you have your home, and someone comes over for dinner that night, and we could say, hmm, all right, stop right here. Who's who? It's like, well, Eric and Leslie are the parents, and we got six looty kids, and then we got this family that came over and are guests. All right? So you got that figure out? They're guests. How we relate to each other is very different, and how they relate to us. For instance, my child's room may still be a mess, even though I told them that morning to clean it up. But the guest, if the guest comes over and says, you know, to one of my kids, come over here. And I'm like, excuse me, what are you doing? Come over here. Your parent told you to clean your room this morning. You didn't. Get over my knee. Now, are you offended by this? Is is something not right? Something's not right. But what? It's that that person is taking upon themselves a role that isn't theirs. And when they do, it actually brings conflict and not solution. You see, when that parent who might be, that guest who comes in may be right, technically that child probably does deserve a little discipline and correction, but they are not the one to do it. When they take a position that isn't theirs, it actually creates harm. Now the parent is upset with the guest, the child is upset with the guest, and the guest is bewildered and cannot figure out why there's an offense in the situation. Well, we could break down the situation for you, oh guest, and try and explain this to you. So the parent. The parent has a job description. To lovingly lead, humbly exercise correction, to kindly teach and instruct the children under their care. So you could have a parent in a home. You could have a parent in a church. Potential strengths. There's there's some potential strengths here. And you're going to notice I'm going to go to potential weaknesses. The potential strengths of a parent are that they are ready to step in and exert corrective authority at any and every juncture in order to preserve the sanity and safety of the home. It's always nice to know that there's a parent there. Children rest deeper at night, sleep better at night, knowing that their parents are there and they will protect them, right? It's just a good thing, knowing that someone is on the lookout for you, someone I know is upstairs locking that door, locking that window, making sure the security alarm is on and everything's going to be safe. It's just, just how it works. Parents, it's a strength that parents can bring. Now, potential weaknesses, passivity. You see, if a parent in that position is passive, suddenly there's no peace, Suddenly, there's no deep rest. Now, suddenly, there's an insecurity. You see, that parent may choose to act like a child instead of a parent, and chaos will rule the home. Expecting the parent, or expecting the child to lock up. Expecting the child to close the windows and turn on the security system. Excuse me? What do you you think? I'm I'm just here in the house with you. You see, if a parent does not actively engage in their role as a parent, and they become passive and allow anything and everything to happen in that home, there's no correction, there's no teaching, there's no training, there's no instruction, you have chaos in that home. Or this parent may choose to be overbearing and harsh in his or her position of leadership and therefore crush the spirit of love and unity in the home. We've all, as dads, had those days where just things are irritating. You know, this bad news came in, this piece of bad news came in, and you become a little short with your children. And you know what happens? It doesn't breed happiness in the home. When you bring in a bad attitude or you speak harshly or short with your children, you notice that it never breeds anything good. It breeds hurt. It breeds harm. It destroys. It breeds insecurity in the children. Everything that's bad comes in from one bad day, from one dad speaking in that tone. 
And so this is how it can be a weakness. Yes, that parent has a position of authority, and if they use it properly, it actually creates health. But if they use it improperly, it breeds disaster. Now, the child. The child has a job description. Isn't that a funny thought to think a child has a job description? To be a child. That's their job description. To show honor to the parent, to mind their own business well, and to serve the family through humble, meek, and loving submission. I say it to my children a lot. That's none of your business. So when you took so-and-so into the other room to give them a discipline, what did you do? That's none of your business. You see, children need to learn how to stay in their business and to tend to their business because a child has some business to do. They have to obey. They have to learn to honor. They have to learn all these things we're talking about, and they have to exercise what they know of truth. And it's not their business to go over here and try and parent when they're a child. So there's some potential strengths in being a child. They're ready to say yes to all parental leading. Fervent in enthusiasm for doing what the parent decides needs to be done and able to humbly suggest appeal if necessary for even greater family strength, if even greater family strength could be gained through it. Could you imagine how wonderful it would be to be a parent and say, we're going to go up to the mountains today. My mom's famous story is, she's, we're going to go up to the mountains. I'm like, all right, do I need to come? She's like, yes, you do need to come, Eric. What are we going to do? It's like, well... Me and Donna decided that we're going to go get some decorative rocks up in the mountains. And so we have a spot that she's scoped out, and we're going to get some rocks. We're going to get rocks. I just want to stay here. No, Eric, you're going to come with us. We're going to have a fun time. That was one of the worst days of my life and one of the worst days of my mom's life. Because I was recalcitrant, rebellious. I didn't want to be there. I grumbled and stewed the whole time in the back seat, mumbled. They would say something. I'd go, in the back. You see, that's not me being a good child. You see, my potential strength is I could have actually aided and served my mom in her role. Now, I could make an appeal, and that's a healthy home is based on appeal, but that appeal is only for a stronger family. It's never just for my own benefit. Teachable and eager to learn from those God put over them. Hmm. I didn't do a very good job at that when I was 13. Potential weaknesses. There's some weaknesses to being a child. Usurping. You see, a child can try and usurp strength and control. From a young age, when they first pop out of the womb, what's a child doing? Put me in charge. That's what the baby's saying. Put me in charge. I know what I want, and you do my bidding. You see, a child is a usurper almost by nature because that's the fallen nature. It's the Adamic condition they're in. And so if a child isn't corrected and harnessed by a good parent, that child actually becomes a nightmare child. Many of us have run into those children. So they may choose to act like a parent instead of child, and chaos will rule the home. Or they may be critical, frustrated, undermining, and or fault-finding in their relationship with fellow siblings, and thus become the tattler. You ever seen one of those? Yeah, you know what? You do not need to teach a kid to be a tattler. Kids instinctively know how to tattle. They act, and what's tattling? They want to see punishment come to their brothers and sisters. They actually want to see them hurt. See, that's the problem with tattling. Because sometimes you do need to say, yeah, so-and-so is hanging by their toes from the window three stories up. I I don't want to be a tattler, but I figured you maybe should know. (laughs) That's actually seeking, and it's a desire to see them rescued. There's a big difference between the two. If a child's motive is to help, that's one thing. You don't want to curb that. But if the child's motive is to harm and to see their brother or sister hurt, disciplined, that's a completely wrong motive, and that's the devil's motive. He's the tail bearer. 
So here's another potential weakness. Or they may be critical, frustrated, and undermining and or fault-fighting in their relationship with their parents and thus become the rebel or the nefarious and dreaded Absalom, the one who literally destroyed his father. And, I mean, the things that Absalom did were dreadful. It's a child gone wrong. And so what we want to be is the child gone right. What about the guest and the relative? Well, I think I've already covered that enough to let you know that, you see, some of you are guests today in this church. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with a guest. We're supposed to be hospitable to to a guest. However, it wouldn't be your role to suddenly correct how the church functions, if that makes sense. In other words, you could pray. If you see something that's a little disconcerting, you could pray about it. But it's not necessarily your position to come in and correct everything or to take a group of the thing and say, I'm really concerned about uh, this church and your leadership, and here, why don't you follow me uh, instead? You know, those things can be very dangerous. Uh, The relative is the one that is of close relationship. Have you ever had uh, the relative that when you're naming your child, they put in their two cents? Less than I have a philosophy. Don't share the name of your forthcoming child until they're born. Once they're born, then it's like too late. And everyone's like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And it'll grow on them and they'll eventually like it. But if you give that name prematurely, you get every relative opinion in the thing. And technically, it's none of their business. Okay, I mean, have you ever had those relatives that will stick their nose in your business? And it really is inappropriate. That's all you can say about it. It's actually, this has nothing to do with you. However they feel, because in their mentality, a relative has equal say as a spouse. It's like, no, you don't. Okay, you don't have that equal say. And that's exactly what I want you to recognize in the church. Some of you might be relatives to a church body. In other words, you're of the same family, you're of the same descent, you care about Jesus the same way. And so you actually want to inject your opinion into that local church. When in actuality, it might not be your position to do so. Introducing a big word that might help us today. Jurisdiction. Now, if you hang around Ellerslie, you know this word. This is a word I use a lot. I used to teach constitutional law, and this is a huge word in constitutional law. Break it up into two parts, juris and diction. Juris means judging. Diction is speech. It's, it's the, the privileged position to say something. And so what this means is the sphere or territory for which you have say. And so we each have a jurisdiction. A child has a jurisdiction. It might not be a very big one, but they actually can decide which side they sleep on at night. If their back, their side, you know, or their stomach. You know, those are things that a child might have say over. They might have say over if they want to fold back the uh, comforter or their blanket, you know, with a fold, or if they want to pull it all the way up. Sometimes parents don't even allow them that. It's like, no, this is how you, how you do it. A child has jurisdiction, though. Maybe they choose which socks to put on, which shirt to put on. Now, as they grow, a child's jurisdiction grows with how they've proven responsible with first jurisdictions. If they have not proven faithful with their sock drawer and they throw it all over the room every morning, then their sock drawer might be taken over by mama. And mama keeps the sock drawer in her own room. And if the child ever needs socks, they have to go to mama to get them. If you prove unfaithful with little, you do not get entrusted with more. And so jurisdiction is based on proving faithful with what you have. And as you grow up, you get more and more jurisdiction. Jurisdictions must be respected. You know that it actually teaches us in the Bible that we're supposed to respect other jurisdictions? Listen to what Paul says. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere, which is a jurisdiction, which God appointed us. So Paul's saying, look, I've been given a jurisdiction. 
a sphere or a jurisdiction which especially includes you. So when he's writing to the church at Corinth, he's saying, you're in my jurisdiction. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. So as a result, Paul's saying, look, what I'm doing in speaking this way to you, by the way, this is the church at Corinth, remember the one that was a mess? Yeah, Paul, this is his second letter, very likely at another one too. He's like, hey guys, uh, you're not hearing me, and if you're wondering, hey, who is this guy that's babbling our way? You're in my jurisdiction. I'm your parent. So I do have a position to say something. So let's look at a few different concepts for jurisdiction. The child should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision upon the parent. No, no, that's not right. It's not an appropriate way to set up a home. The parent should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision on someone else's child. Uh -uh. Uh-uh, wrong. The guest shouldn't spank a child for not cleaning his room. The child should not put another child over his knee and bring correction. The relative should not intervene in the parent's discipline of the child. So these are all just sort of obvious little faux pas of jurisdictional contradiction. But what I want you to begin to recognize in this room is, first of all, recognize your jurisdiction. What is it that God has entrusted you in this church? And I want you to handle, if it's just a sock drawer, handle your sock drawer well. Because you're not going to get entrusted with more if you're dumping socks all over the room. Does that make sense? And how many of us are dumping socks wondering why we're not being put in charge of the whole house? It's like, why do you hire a cleaner? Look at me. I'm here. I'm your child. I could take that job. You show me with your sock drawer and we'll talk. In other words, the way we work in the church is we prove faithful with little and that enables us to increase jurisdiction. The lowdown on strife and division. Is it good or bad? This is, might be a little surprising because strife and division is just a bad dude, right? It's just a bad thing. But so why am I even asking the question? That there should be no schism in the body. This is Paul's desire. Remember, this is 1 Corinthians. But that the members should have the same care for one another. There should be no schisms, no divisions in the body. You should be of one mind, one spirit, one purpose. But then look at John 7. So there was a division among the people because of him. Who's the him? Jesus. Well, isn't that an irony? There's a division amongst the people because of Jesus? Uh Uh-oh. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them because of who? Jesus. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. Uh-oh, we got some problems here. Didn't I just tell you to avoid anyone? I mean, it's literally an abomination to God if someone comes in and spreads strife amongst brethren. However, there is one key thing in all of history, and this is the one rallying point, and if you miss it, how you stand on this one defines heaven, hell. It defines sheep, goats, wheat, tares. It defines everything in life. Light, dark, death, life. It is all centered on one individual, Jesus Christ. If you are offended by him, you die. If you accept him, yield to him, humble yourself, and allow him to be your savior, you live. It's that simple. This one, known as Jesus, is the one that causes stumbling and division. Not you. Jesus will cause a stumble. Jesus will divide, but he's the shepherd that divides sheep and goats. He's the one that divides wheat from tares. 
He knows it's his job. You are not the one. You are not the judge. You are not the the shepherd that can see the difference between the sheep and the goats. That's his job. Your job is to be a sheep and to do it well by trusting your shepherd and abiding in his shadow. Key for a sheep, hang out near the ankle. Wolves come, you don't fear them. Your job is to abide. Another sheep comes to you, what do you tell them? (laughs) You point at the shepherd, he's the one. You're not the savior of sheep. You're not the one who takes down wolves. You're not the great protector of the sheepfold. He is. His truth is. And as you graduate into greater jurisdiction as a sheep, you might become a parent sheep. However, your job is to still lead people to the shepherd. The decision man. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, says Jesus, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Didn't you come to send peace on earth and goodwill to all men? Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a, a sword? For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter, and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Excuse me? And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. Quote, unquote, Jesus the Christ. Whoa, how are we supposed to handle that one? The division point is Jesus, not you. You see, you could have a father and a mother and a child. Same division point. It's Jesus. Parents could choose to reject Jesus. You must choose Jesus. And if you choose Jesus and they reject Jesus, guess what? Division has been brought, but it wasn't brought by you. You still love your parents. You still honor your parents. However, you choose to love Jesus even more. And even though that may look on the outside, just by reading that, as if you're being rude and calloused and hard-hearted, technically what you're doing is being loving. You're loving Jesus the way he's asked you to love him. And guess what? It doesn't mean anti-love towards your, your parents in that situation. You love them all the more. You pray for them. However, it brings a division of the right sort. That is actually a healthy form of division, if you want to say it that way, because you are choosing Jesus. You are loving Jesus even more than your parents. It's your parents' choice to reject you because you're not rejecting them. So the division point is Jesus, not you or your pet doctrine. If you are the division point, your attitude, your actions, your quarreling, your contentions, your gossip, whoa, big issue. Your pet doctrines are the issue in the church. You keep preaching this little point, and it literally is creating sparks, and it's like someone coming in with a hammer and hitting people over the head, and it's literally breaking down the unity of a church. This isn't what is healthy in the church. However, if you stand strong for Jesus Christ, unbending, that he is God, that he is the lone means of salvation, and people look at you like, what kind of idea is that? That's the right form of division. As long as it's moved by love, by humility, by purity. If there is a conflict, division, separation, and drama, may it be because you live as Jesus lived, love as Jesus loved, seek to save as Jesus sought to save, and speak the truth as Jesus spoke the truth. If there is conflict, it must stem from the fact that Jesus is the tripping point and not your fleshly ridiculousness. So fleshly ridiculousness. And it's two avenues of entry into the church. 
when it's not someone else's place to bring decision and to reckon punishment, and yet they do it anyway. When you go outside of your jurisdiction, when a child takes a position of correcting leadership or correcting others in the church or bringing criticism that is being fostered, they're outside of their jurisdiction, and as a result, this brings in the fleshly ridiculousness into the church. That's one of the windows. Here's another door or window. When someone's attitude is born of the flesh and not of the spirit of love, and therefore an evil form of corrective judgment enters the quarters of the church. If you are moved by the flesh, any of those works of the flesh towards the other members of the body, it's disaster, but also for a leader. A leader or a parent might be in a position to bring proper correction, but if they do it of the flesh, it actually brings all this fleshly ridiculousness into the church. If you've ever seen a hard leader, a leader that is very strong maybe, and so he justifies everything under his strength, but is actually calloused and unloving and unmerciful and unkind in his manner, it is destructive to a body. We still must be Jesus. No matter if you're the parent or the child, you still must showcase Jesus Christ. Recognizing the flesh in our handling of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So here I'm going to just go through this list very quickly. Seven common fleshly operations that can subtly worm their way into our body life. Pride. The preservation of self's agenda, the fleshly cry of, please notice me, applaud me, and make me your first love. A willingness to stomp on others so that you might be more clearly seen. It's a funny thing. We want people to be impressed with us. And so in the body of Christ, in and amongst our conversations, we'll drop key tidbits of information about us. Something that would cause us to look grand in their eyes. That is actually a destructive element in the church. Fault-finding, criticism. Blind to virtue and fixating on fault. It kills a church. Tattling. Eh, We don't typically use that word in the church because that's a little kid word. But accusation, we do. Supplying information with the singular desire to bring punishment to someone else. Reviling. Beholding someone with contempt. Sneering at their every action. Rolling your eyes at their every word. Withholding love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Hating. Desiring someone's destruction. Resenting, refusing to forgive, refusing to look past a fault. Jealousy, destroying someone out of a wanton lust for what that person possesses. So now let's talk about the things I want to see you cultivate. All that other stuff is basically saying, yeah, yeah, we don't want that. Let's talk about what God wants to build in the church. Seven Seven heavenly attributes that the Holy Spirit is fostering in our midst. Humility, a yearning for Christ to be seen more clearly and for the lives around you to find their true fulfillment in his love and grace. Hope, a constant thought that salvation is just up ahead, even for the dirtiest, most rotten scoundrels. You see, even if you have an irritant near you, you have one of those members of the body that's just like, oh boy, this church would be wonderful without them. Do you have hope? A constant thought that maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day for them. It's hope. It's humility. Faith and knowing that God's word is powerful and two-edged and if if believed and administered properly will not return without effect. Love, a willingness to suffer harm and wrong in order to see that others might find life. A true yearning to see others find life, love, and liberty in Jesus Christ. Kindness, a warmth of manner that befits the nature of the King of Kings. Slow to anger, quick to forgive, always eager to offer the mercies of God toward the repentant and always desirous to see the unrepentant soften and turn from their wickedness. Number six, anguish. It ought to hurt to bring about discipline and to issue punishment. If you administer discipline and punishment and it doesn't hurt you when you do, and it's easy for you to do it, that should be a sign that something's wrong. In other words, as a leader, as a parent, 
If you're in a position to actually bring correction, it shouldn't be comfortable. You should always feel an ache for those you're ministering that grace to. There should never be a delight in seeing men suffer for their sin. Number seven, courage. It takes a lot of it to administer the truth of Jesus Christ. Whether that be in a soul, a home, a church, a business, or a civil sphere, true judging is always against the flow and always difficult. The judging test. So in every situation, there is judgment. You know, judgment simply means to make decision. But the reason you're supposed to judge not lest you be judged is there's certain issues it's not your position to judge on. This has nothing to do with you. So God says, judge not lest you be judged. First, start removing planks from your eyes so you can see clearly to help your brother remove one from his. If you want to be in a position of leadership, which is speck removal, then you need to allow planks to be removed from your eyes. So if you're still a child, be a child. Don't judge. Do not put yourself in a parental position. But you know that parents still need to judge? Isn't that a terrible sounding thought? Parents judge? Yeah. Leaders have to judge. They have to make decisions for their environment to keep them healthy and strong. It's just how it works. So is it your position to judge? You know that if it is your position to judge, you need to. As uncomfortable as that might be, you still need to. You need to make decisions for those around you. Whose jurisdiction is it? One of the key questions of early American history. The question is, whose jurisdiction is it? Is that the federal government's decision? No! It's the local family's decision to decide how they're going to school their children. It's the local family's decision to decide how they're going to train their children in faith. It is not the government's decision. That's an issue of jurisdiction. Is there a void of leadership? You see, you might be in an environment, it's not necessarily your jurisdiction to do it, but is there a void of leadership? Because if there is a void of leadership, then sometimes God may ask you to step up and take a strong stand. But if so, is it your place to step in? Or is there someone to whom an appeal could be made? What is your heart condition? You see, you might be in the position to judge, or you might realize there's an empty spot. I could stand in it, and I, I, I could leave the situation. I see clearly. But what is your heart condition? Are you seeking to genuinely save, or are you secretly seeking to see someone punished? You see, if you're coming all humbly up to your leadership to say, you know, and I just am concerned about so-and-so, what's your heart condition? In other words, is it, oh, I really want to get back at them? Or are you genuinely concerned? You genuinely want to see them healthy? Because there's a big difference between the two. Is your judging of the Spirit of God in humility and love and truth and fear and trembling? Is the Word of God your basis or are, you your own, or are your own human philosophies and or social sensitivities your guide? Hudson's summer spot. So on our back porch, I, we had a group of students coming over to our house and uh, I was cleaning up the back porch and there was this log back there and had blue chalk on it. And so I took the log, which was sitting on my back porch and doesn't belong there, to the side of the house and found a spot for it. And then Hudson comes out later and goes, hey, where's my summer spot? And I go, your summer spot? He goes, yeah, my summer spot. It was right here. It had blue chalk on it. I go, oh, that was your summer spot, huh? And I go, what's your summer spot? He goes, oh, well, I just sort of sit on it during the summer and I mind my own business. I was thinking, you know what? That's perfect for right now. We're right in the middle of the summer, and there's some of us in this room that might need to get a little log, put some blue chalk on it, and sit on it. (laughs) We need to mind our own business. You see, if you don't mind your business, you're not fit to mind someone else's. 
You know that God actually intends us to be able to mind other people's businesses alongside of them? In other words, not in the bad way. But when we are strong in our own business, you know that we're actually strong to help others in theirs? But if we're not fit in our own business, we won't be fit to help others in their business. And so we need to start by minding our own business. Log, blue chalk, summertime, a summer spot. We need to find that spot and sit in it. And then, you know what? When you take that seat and you take it well and you're faithful in it, you know that God will call you up and say, you know what? I'd like to put you in charge of more. That's how God does it. Many of you in this room are going to be raised up into very strong positions in this generation of leadership. Praise God. But the way you'll be a great leader is by being a great child, too. So if you're in a child position, be a child and be an excellent one. And God, through that, will put you in a position of being a parent so you can be an excellent one. Neither pray I for these alone. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his high priestly prayer. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us. Jesus was praying for us in the Garden of Gethsemane that they may all be one. What's his prayer? That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, and that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So I say, let's shut down the devil's business. If you know how the devil works, shut it down in your life. If you recognize that you have works of the flesh in your life that shouldn't be there, simple solution, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with those things and say, I acknowledge those things are wrong. Those behaviors are not of you. And so I repent, I turn from them, but I turn not just from them, but unto the solution. Jesus is the solution for proper behavior. Jesus is the solution for actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You can't solve these dilemmas in your own life, in your own strength. But you have one who has solved them for you. And when you turn to him and trust him, it's amazing, but it's like a branch cut off from a tree. That branch, if it's supposed to bear good fruit, what's it bearing? Nothing. It's it's just a cut off branch. It's dead. And so it doesn't matter how hard that branch tries, it cannot change its dead branchness. But God is saying, could you yield your dead branchness unto me and I will make you live, alive again. And that's what it means to be grafted into the vine. The vine is God. The vine is Jesus Christ. And when we yield our life to him, you know what happens? We're included in his righteousness, which is the vine. It's perfect. It's the way a vine ought to be. But then we as a branch suddenly get the life of that vine in us. And the sap from that vine begins to immediately course into us. What happens if Good sap is suddenly entering this newly enlivened branch. What happens? Fruit. You don't need to produce the fruit. God will. Your job is to allow him to do it. Your job is to turn to him and hold on and say, God, my life is yours. Please produce the good stuff in me. If your marriages stink, go to Jesus. He's the solution for stinky marriages. If your parenting stinks, go to Jesus. If your childhood stinks, in other words, you're not treating your parents the way you ought, same solution, ironically. It's Jesus. And if your church, Enos, isn't right and it stinks, let's get this together. 
Let's be the body. I want us to be sensitive in the body to not entertain the wrong things here. So I want to lock windows, close doors, but on the inside of the house, I want to have a nice roaring fire, maybe some music playing in the background, some laughter, maybe a bowl of uh, popcorn, peanuts, you know, things like that. Some chips. I used to have chips and like some salsa type of stuff for football games. It was like sour cream, I think it was. No, it was cream cheese with, with salsa on top. We could get some of that out, okay? But we as a body begin to function as a family where we want to be with each other and we don't just put up with each other because we're checking something off our list, but we actually delight to know each other and be with each other. With all our idiosyncrasies, with all our smelly moments, we love each other. Doesn't that sound fun? We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.